0: Hi, my name is Casey Dow. Uh, I direct the Music Rocks Initiative. Um, I'm very excited to welcome everybody to our first ever skills workshop surrounding uh, ureteroscopy uh, entitled Decision-Making in Ureteroscopy. So for those of you who are uh, unfamiliar or less aware, uh, the Michigan Urologic Surgery Improvement Collaborative, or MUSIC, is a consortium of urologists and urology practices across the state of Michigan that aim to improve the quality and cost efficiency of urologic care. Our overall mission is to make Michigan the number one place for urologic care. We have three main initiatives dealing with prostate cancer, kidney stones, that's rocks, and kidney cancer. Overall, we have more than 90% of the urologists in the state participating across 46 practices, and we have more than 90,000 cases currently within the music registry. Music Rocks was established in 2016 with the goal of making Michigan the best place in the world to receive kidney stone care. Currently, we have 238 urologists across 39 practices that are joining this effort. In the registry, we have more than 23,000 kidney stone cases between ureteroscopy and shockwave lithotripsy. We have a variety of quality improvement initiatives that are currently ongoing, Our founding principle was to decrease unplanned healthcare encounters or emergency department visits across the state, but we've also developed several other initiatives, including implementation of an appropriateness panel to understand the use of stent placement during ureteroscopy, as well as tracking patient-reported outcomes after commonly performed stone procedures. We use the insights of five patient advocates who can provide their perspectives as kidney stone formers, and this work has led to peer-reviewed publications in noteworthy urologic journals. As I mentioned previously, our primary goal was to decrease modifiable emergency department visits after kidney stone surgery. When we began this effort in 2016, ED visits within 30 days of ureteroscopy in Michigan were 10%. In the year 2020, that rate was 7.8%. So our, our, our efforts are bearing fruit If we were to look at this along a timeline, we've kind of tackled many aspects of the urologic continuum within ureteroscopy. In the preoperative setting, we've engaged patients through education and optimization of pain control. In the intraoperative space, we've begun to understand implications of stent placement for patients after surgery. And in the postoperative space, we've tackled optimizing pain control while limiting opiate analgesia. But as we've talked about this more and more listening to our member urologists one thing commonly comes through and that is that many decisions are made in the operating room and how many or what decisions might have impact or implications for patients so the purpose of today's skills workshop is to provide guidance and refine our techniques with the hope that it's going to improve outcomes and achieve our qi goals we have a loaded expert faculty today and a lot of these people gave their time and talents to make this workshop happen so i'm I'm very grateful. Our expert surgeons from outside institutions include Mike Borofsky, who's an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota, Dr. Ojas Shah, the George F. Cahill Professor of Urology at Columbia University, and Dr. Margaret Pearl, the Professor and Vice Chair of the Department of Urology at UT Southwestern. We also have several featured music surgeons, Dave Levitt from Henry Ford Health System, John DiBianco, our current research fellow at Michigan Medicine, Khurshid Ghani uh, uh, here at Michigan Medicine, and finally, Muhammad Jafri at Comprehensive Urology. By way of agenda, we're going to be providing evidence-based solutions to common clinical scenarios in ureteroscopy. Dr. Borofsky is going to be tackling the issue of ureteral access sheath use. Stone treatment strategies for renal stones are going to be discussed by Dr. Uh, Margaret Pearl, who's going to be discussing stone fragmentation and basket extraction techniques, where as Dr. Ghani is gonna provide a counterpoint of fragmentation or dusting strategies, which he has popularized worldwide. And then finally, Dr. Oja Shah is gonna provide some insights on types of ureteral stents with particular focus on novel ureteral stents. All the while, we're gonna be providing you with feedback on what the music data is telling us. And that's where the music surgeons are gonna come in and really provide some context to the talks that we're getting from our expert surgeons. So we've got a great program today. Throughout, we're hoping to provide high-yield video-based instructions on all the key aspects of flexible ureteroscopy for kidney stones. So without any more delay from me, I'd like to introduce introduce our first speaker. Dr. Mike Borofsky is an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota. He's a world-recognized expert in both kidney stone surgery, which he'll discuss today, but but also laser enucleation of the prostate. He's a close friend. Uh, and a fellow colleague when we trained with the eminent Dr. James Lingam at Indiana University. So he's gonna be providing some information today on ureteral access sheath use uh, and give us some good insights into how we should use that in our practices. So thanks a lot, Mike.
1: All right, thank you to Dr. Dow and thanks to the entire music working group for allowing me the opportunity to present. I'm Mike Borofsky from the University of Minnesota. I'm an endourologist and I'll be talking about ureteral access sheath use. These are my disclosures. So I put this slide in here to show you there's many ways to the top of the mountain. And in ureteroscopy, there are many different paths you can take to successfully treat a stone. What I might take, the path I might take, and the one I'm going to talk about today using a ureteral access sheath may be very different from the one you're comfortable with. And that's fine. I think it's just important to know your tools and to know the different potential options you have when treating stones. So what is a ureteral access sheet? Well, it's a disposable device that's used to achieve access from outside the body up into the ureter and into the kidney. Sheets are hydrophilic and they come in variable lengths and variable diameters. And they're routinely used um, during ureteroscopy um, from among endourologists. Survey data from the Endourology Society would suggest that about 50% of endourologists routinely use sheets to treat ureteral stones and about three quarters, you routinely use them for the treatment of renal stones. Why would you consider using one? Well, one one reason would be for basket extraction. Sheath use has been associated with a higher potential stone free rate, and they can make it easier to get up into the kidney, to basket a piece um, of stone, and then to make a rapid passage back up um, into the kidney in order to remove another piece. Another good reason to consider a sheep is the potential to decrease intrarenal pressure. So as you're irrigating the kidney during the procedure, you're also potentially pressurizing the kidney, which is not something that is is generally a good thing to do. A high intrarenal pressure is associated with a potential increased risk for infection, for caliceal rupture, bleeding pain, and urinoma formation. And studies among um, pigs, this is a pig study uh, from about a year ago, shows that a sheath, the presence of a sheath can lower the intrarenal pressure relative to not using a sheath. And then the bigger your sheath is, the lower the intrarenal pressure associated with your procedure as well. Why else consider using one? Well, the presence of a sheath can improve your vision. So when you have a sheath in place, you get better fluid exchange. Um, Sheets can improve actually the irrigation outflow by 30 to 80%. So you can imagine that by exchanging your fluid and your bloody or your dusty fluid for clear saline, you can see better and that allows you to work uh, more efficiently, more safely, um, and with potential better outcomes as well. Why wouldn't you use a sheath every time? Well, you can, you can damage the ureter. This is a, a very famous picture now from Dr. Traxer that was published um, a few years back showing ureteral mucosal injuries with sheath passage. Um, obviously, you would be concerned about stricture in these cases. There's also the potential for ureteral wall ischemia. So just having the sheath for a prolonged period of time can decrease blood flow to the ureter, who knows, potentially could increase the risk for stricture. And then there's a cost consideration. Every disposable that you open during your vetoroscopy is going to increase the cost of the procedure um, potentially. When you place a a sheep, it's important to have in mind, you don't want to force a square peg into a round hole. And I'll show you over the next couple slides here um, how to avoid doing this. But it's very important to uh, to have in mind that you have to be flexible. Not every ureter is going to accept a sheep. So how do you choose um, the right sheath or at the right time. We have a plan, and before you go to the OR, think to yourself: How much risk are you willing to take in order to get a sheath um, or to use a sheath during the case? Me personally, if somebody is pre-stented and is a big renal stone, I'm going to take, I'm going to try a sheath out because in those cases, typically the ureter is going to be stretchy, dilated um, from from passive dilation with the stent in place, and I think there's little harm and little risk in trying a sheath. If I want to basket. I'm going to try a sheath a little bit more, um, with a little bit more intention there, because I really do think that a sheath allows you um, a, a better ability and a safer ability to basket. And if there's a concern for infection, that's when I'm going to try hardest to get a sheath up there, because I really do believe that a lower intrarenal pressure um, is much safer to work um, to work in during um, the treatment of an infected stone. So that's when I'm going to be most aggressive in trying to get the sheath into the kidney. Preoperatively, there are other considerations you can take as well. Um, a study from 2016, including one of our co-speakers today, Dr. Shah, found that among unscented primary ureteroscopy cases, there was about an 8% failure rate. So that's important to know that not every ureter is gonna be accommodating. And risk factors for, for failure were proximal ureteral stones as well as young, uh, young females. There's also a nice uh, study in this month's Journal of Urology where uh, Dr. Manga and his colleagues mesh- measured the proximal ureteral diameter and found that the wider the proximal ureter on um, the preoperative CT, the less likely there was to be a sheath-related high-grade injury. So about four millimeters or greater is gonna allow you some protection in um, passing the sheath. There are also some visual clues you can take at the beginning of the procedure. So this is a procedure where you start you're using an eight French catheter to perform a retrograde pyogram, and you just see right away that the, the ureter is tiny. It's way smaller than the eight French catheter that I routinely use for my retrograde. And this is a visual clue that I would take to say, I'm probably not going to be able to get a sheath of this ureter. Next up, um, I'm going to give you my two cents on sheets in general. I think in every case, you want to get to know the ureter before you open or try to pass the sheath. And you can do this by passing 8-10 dilator, dual lumen catheter, or the scope itself. If those pass easily up the ureter, that's going to tell you that you probably have a good ureter, a stretchy compliant one that's going to accept the sheath. In most cases for me, I'm going to use an 1113 sheath, which I think offers all the advantages of a sheath without uh, really uh, tempting fate and, and potentially risking injury by passing something that's too large. If the ureter is tight, but I still want to try a sheep, in that case, I might use a smaller sheep a 10-12. Um, and if it's a really big stone burden that I'm treating, and I know that the ureter is favorable, I'll sometimes use a 12-14. Rarely, rarely, rarely will I use a 13-15 and I'll almost never use a 14-16 sheath, which I think is too big for uh, ureteral access sheets in general. In general, I'm also going to use a 36-centimeter long sheath. I find that that gets you up into the proximal ureter or into the mid-ureter pretty safely in most cases, though there are some circumstances where a really long sheath may be beneficial, um, as in male patients where you're going to need some extra length to get the sheath to the same spot, or potentially an obese patient or one with a stretchy, um, redundant ureter. There are rare cases when I would use a short ureteral axis sheath, such as a mid ureteral stone with a tricky distal ureter that maybe J-hooks or that's hard to get back and forth into. As far as the technique, I like to start with a retrograde pylogram. I think it's important to know your, your highway or your passage for where you're gonna pass your sheath. I also wanna make sure that the ureter is clear, that there's no ureteral obstruction, whether it be a stricture or whether it be a ureteral stone before I do pass that sheath up the ureter. I always do this under fluoroscopic guidance, and I do this in a stepwise fashion where I will take the inner dilator first before I pass the outer um, sheath together. It should always pass easily, never force the sheath, and make sure as you're doing it that your wire that you're tracking over doesn't slip back. Otherwise, that can be quite a catastrophic complication because you can poke the back wall of the ureter um, and cause an injury. And I generally will advance the sheath to the UPJ. This is an example of why that retrograde is important. You can see on the, re- on the left hand of the screen here you've got your nice ureter that's wide open from the UO all the way up to the kidney. On the right side, though, you've got um, a very prox- very uh, torturous proximal ureter that's going to make sheath passage uh, much more complicated. and I think it's important to know before you try. So after I've gotten my retrograde, it's my habit now to try to pass the scope up the ureter to clear it. I do think that this tells you a lot about how accommodating uh, the ureter is going to be. If the scope slides up right right up to the kidney very easily and you still want to use a sheath, then I think that um, allows you a little bit more confidence knowing that you can use one more safely. You can also find things like in this case, this was a duplicated ureter that we didn't necessarily expect. But it's a good way to rule out any ureteral obstruction or stones before you pass that sheath up. Next up, um, this is some fluoroscopic Um, Images You can see at the beginning here, I'm going to want to take a picture once I get that sheath beyond the ureteral orifice to make sure it's tracking appropriately. I like to take another picture when I have the sheath beyond uh, the pelvic brim. And then I'm going to position my sheath just at the UPJ, just below the UPJ there, before I take out the inner obturator and start working. What if the sheath won't pass? Well, stop. Don't force it at that point. Uh, If you really want to use the sheath and you're desperate to use it, you can consider dilating the ureter either with sequential ureteral dilators or with a ureteral balloon, but I rarely recommend this. Um, You can also consider a sheathless ureteroscopy. In many cases, the scope itself will pass when the sheath won't. Um, Although if you do accomplish access at that point, you probably are dealing with a tricky ureter, and you're probably going to want to dust the stone rather than risking uh, losing access, access with basket extraction. And you always have the option to stent and come back, which I think is the safest if you do encounter um, a very, very narrow or tricky ureter. So here's a short video. This was a stone we were treating um, up in the kidney. It was about seven millimeters. And, And the reason we were using a sheath in this case is because the stone was infected. We really wanted to make sure that we got as much of the stone out of the kidney to really reduce the potential for a recurrent UTI situation. So you can see we've kind of made some uh, medium sized fragments and that we're going to basket extract. And when we're basketing stones, um, I think it's important to when you're when you're taking the stone back, you never want to force it. So in this case, the stone's coming back easily and I'm making sure that I'm not trying to force the stone back into the sheet because that's when you're going to get into trouble. If you're taking a piece that's too big and you're really forcing it down or what we call them sometimes like a sheath scraper, that is a bad situation. Always make sure that your stones are going to pass easily up and down um, the sheath and up and down the ureter. You don't want to get in a dangerous situation where you get that stone stuck in the proximal ureter. It can make for a challenge removing. It can also make for a potential um, ureteral avulsion if you pull too hard. So it's very important to stop and reposition or move it back up into the kidney. Once we've cleared the stones, I'm going to perform a pullback back looking for injuries. I typically like to do this without a wire in the obturator because I think I can see better in the ureter. Um, in this case, the ureter is very um, open. There is no evidence of any injury, but I'm prepared. If I did see some damage to the ureter, I'm going to stop right away, and I'm going to pass a wire and reestablish my access. Um, and I think in this case, we got lucky. This was a really clean-looking patent ureter. There was nothing that I was concerned about. and. Um, we cannot leave the stent. So if you do encounter a ureteral injury, I think at that point, it's, it's essentially you stop immediately. You pass a wire because you're going to want to place a stent to allow the injury to heal. In most cases, you're going to pass the stent for at least two weeks, but potentially longer. If it's a high-grade injury with um, extravasation on a retrograde pylogram or if you can see um, periureteral fat, I think if you have a very high-grade injury, you may also wanna leave a catheter to really make sure that you're not extravasating any urine and gonna uh, be at a lower risk for urinoma. And in all of these cases, you must ensure follow-up imaging to make sure that that ureter stays open and does not restrict So in conclusion, you know it's a lot to cover in a short amount of time, but know your equipment, have a battle plan and be flexible. Don't necessarily use the same equipment for every case. Every ureter is different and you, you should anticipate changes um, depending on, on patient factors and stone factors. Be safe and have an exit strategy. If what you're doing isn't working, the last thing you wanna do is force that square uh, peg into the round hole. So I'd like to thank you all very much for your attention. I look forward to hearing um, from Dr. Joffrey next, who's gonna be speaking to us about some music projects related to uh, access sheet use. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Dr. Prosky. Uh Again, I'm Mohammed Joffrey and wanted to thank um, music for giving me the opportunity to speak. And uh, so what I'm going to talk about is urethral access sheets use, what does music rock sound like? And so we're going to kind of see uh, how the collaborate does in terms of access sheet use. So uh, when we break down urethral access sheets among music practices and urologists, what always... uh, uh, surprises me, or actually, at this point now, unsurprising is amount of variability when it comes to uh, any variable that's looked at in music. And so, when we break it down at a practice level, uh, you'll see wide variation. You'll see some practices that almost never use an access sheet, and you'll see some practices that will always use an access sheet when we're managing kidney stones. But on average, uh, within music uh, for uh, access sheets, it's about thirty-seven percent of cases. When you break it down on the provider level, uh, you know, with uh, urologists that are doing more than five uh, cases, uh, again, huge variation. You'll have some uh, urologists that will never use an access sheet, and you'll have some urologists that will always use it. And again, um, on average, uh, in the collaborative, uh, 37% of your cases will be done uh, with an access sheet. Let's break this down Uh, when we're trying to evaluate what factors were more associated with access sheet use. um, We looked at the collaborative, we looked at our our, 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 um, uh, series and and said what factors are more associated with usage. So um, the the factors that were more associated were increased uh, patient morbidity, male gender, uh, preoperative uses of an alpha blocker, Uh, Understandably larger stone size, so uh, patients that uh, had access sheets used were on average about nine millimeters in size, uh, whereas those without access sheets used was seven millimeter in size. Stone location was important, so renal stones were more commonly used uh, than ureteral stones if the patient was pre-stented and the need for ureteral dilation. So the next thing that we looked at was how does uh, uh, the collaborative uh, stack up against the guidelines? Uh, so in 2016 was the most recent update uh, from the American Urologic Association guidelines on surgical management of stones. And within that, it talks about uh, a recommendation for urethal access use uh, in patients on anticoagulation and antiplatelet therapy uh, for the purpose of lowering intrarenal pressure uh, for bleeding risk. So how does uh, music stack up Uh, in those patients uh, who are on anticoagulants or on antiplatelet therapy? On average, um, music um, urologists will use it 60% of the time. So uh, an area for improvement in terms of uh, following uh, guidelines, recommendations, uh, or suggestions on when to use an access sheet. The next thing that we look at is outcomes of ural access sheet use, uh, specifically when we talk about what is music rocks, what we're talking about is reducing operative complications in kidney stone surgery. And we really are trying to push any value, uh, any area that's modifiable to reduce that risk. And there's a potential use or being more judicious in our use of access sheets to help from this. And so uh, when we analyze our patients, uh, you know, it, access sheet use was, uh, had a 50% higher odds of an emergency department visit, as well as a 77% higher odds of uh, need for hospitalizations. And this is uh, within 30 days of having uh, surgery. So what should we do uh, when you evaluate this? We'll say uh, that you read access sheet has its role, uh, but we should use this judiciously. Uh, We should look at the patient and the patient's stone burden, stone location, and decide on uh, if an excess sheet use would be helpful or not, knowing that the use of an excess sheet may be associated with a higher ED visit and a higher hospitalization rate. And so this is one of the areas that we're constantly evaluating, uh, looking at the data, looking at the information the data provides, seeing what actionable um, measures can be taken, and then uh, seeing what those outcomes are. And so with this, I uh, wanted to thank you uh, again for allowing me to talk about access sheets, uh, use in endo urology, uh, how it stacks in from the collaborative at music. And for this, we'll now transition over to an open discussion.
0: Wow, that was a really great discussion there. I appreciate uh, both the contributions from uh, Dr. Borofsky uh, and Dr. Joffrey. Um, We've gotten several great questions uh, from uh, the group uh, that's on the webinar, so please feel free throughout uh, the presentations that we're giving uh, to uh, chime in with any questions you have. So to Mike, um, many of the questions that we've received thus far uh, center around the use of a safety wire when you're employing a ureteral access sheath, and so the question I have for you from several urologists is, I noticed in your case, you're kind of using your your sheath as a safety wire, but do you ever routinely place a safety wire alongside the ureteral access sheath?
1: Yes, I I think that's a really great question. Um, You know, truthfully, like I put out in that slide at the beginning, I think there are a lot of different ways. And I would say if you're not comfortable using a sheath and you're not comfortable with flexible ureteroscopy in general, the safety wire may be something that you wanna consider. Um, I do think that if you've used you know a lot of sheets before and you're very comfortable with flex with maneuvering a flexible uh, ureteroscope in general it's generally unlikely that you're going to get into so, so much trouble um, with the sheath that you're not going to be able to get a wire back up um, it may be slightly less safe uh, certainly there's a possibility but i also find that you can get a sheath in more easily because you don't have that wire taking up a little bit of extra room in the ureter and like you said the sheath really does serve as some you know to some degree um your safety just in the sense that it's preserving your access into the ureter so that um you could argue the you know it's it's in some cases taking the same role of the safety wire while it's there
0: yeah so what i'm kind of hearing from you too uh, is that when in doubt never uh you, would you be against the use of a safety wire um but in your you know, current practice, that's the way you're going. So you mentioned safety wires. So to kind of move on to that point, I just, you know, pull the group here, Um, Mo and and Mike, what sort of a wire are you using to place the ureteral access sheath over at the initial aspect of the case?
1: So I'm happy to start with that one, but I would generally use um, a um, hybrid wire or Benson wire. Um, I think that that's one of the good controversies in urology sometimes is do you use a super stiff um, or not? And I would say that I sometimes caution using a super stiff because I think it provides you a little bit too strong of a highway up the ureter. Um, I do think it's more likely that you'll have an easier time placing the sheath, but potentially at the expense of forcing that sheath um, up, a, up a tight spot that it wouldn't otherwise go. So I like a little bit of that tactile feedback um, that I get from using um, a wire that's not quite so stiff. So I would use a hybrid wire with a hydrophilic tip and a, and a PTFD cord.
0: Okay, yeah, what about you, Mohamed?
2: Same here, I, I like the dual flex wire. So I use a dual flex wire. Um, I think it, it's, uh, you know, I like the, the, the hydrophilic tip, but I feel like I need a little bit of substance uh, rather than a glide wire to help me pass the excess sheet. And then if I'm using a safety wire, I use a Benson just because it's cheap, uh so just to try to reduce costs i try to use a cheaper
0: wire as my safety wire okay so a couple other questions that we've gotten that maybe both you guys could address is um is there anything aside from the eyeball test so to speak that allows you to understand whether a stone that you're basketing in the kidney is going to make it through your sheath any any tips and tricks you guys have as far as stone size assessment i mean you guys do this Uh, extensively, but anything we can use potentially to gauge size of stone so we know we're not in a situation like Mike mentioned, where it gets stuck in the proximal ureter or heaven forbid gets stuck in the sheath itself.
1: Dr. Jaffer, you wanna start with
2: that one? Yeah, I think first and foremost, I think actually to me, it's more importantly, it's actually not the size of the stone, but actually what does the ureter look like proximal to the sheath? And I think that's the biggest factor uh, I find more so uh, in terms of being able to basket the stones. I mean, I think sometimes you have the sheet up, but that proximal ureter, there's an area that's a little bit edematous, a little bit tight. Um, and so sometimes that will dictate more. So I feel like than you know, I think visually you can tell from the basket what you're able to basket with, a, you know, I'll usually use a 1.9 French basket uh, to kind of see, but I, I think it's actually more of the character of the proximal ureter that will kind of dictate what uh stone will be able to be basketed.
1: Yeah. I can- I would agree with that. I think the other things you can use is just generally, you know, the, the laser fiber, um, using that as a size threshold. Sometimes a, a really, really, really hydronephrotic kidney can um, make a big stone look kind of small because the, the space is so big. And so sometimes having that um, tip of the laser to use as a gauge can give you some idea. And I totally agree with the caliber of the proximal ureter, not just not just in how big it is, but a lot of the proximal ureters, um can can twist a little bit so one thing that i always you know talk about when i'm in the with the residents is that you actually when you have a sheath up sometimes you can actually change the proximal um you know degree of curvature of the ureter and just by gently pulling back on the sheath just very 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 gently you can actually open up the ureter a little bit to make a more straight passage um to prevent getting a stone stuck in in a curve
0: Um, Another question that came in, which is interesting, actually from one of the residents at Michigan Medicine, is does the location of the stone that you're treating in the kidney impact your uh, ureteral access sheath use? Um, In in particular, um, uh, where you place it? So Mike, I saw from your video um, that you typically seem to place the ureteral access sheath into the lumbar ureter, which is pretty versatile in the sense you're not crossing the UPJ, you can treat a proximal stone or renal stones but is there ever a role for placing the sheath past the UPJ into the kidney? What do you, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I think it's a good question. I used to do that. Um, and I'll be quite honest that the the proximal ureter is, you know, the most delicate uh, portion of the ureter. It's got the least muscle uh, behind it and it's the most susceptible to injury. And those injuries can be really bad. I mean that that's where you don't want to get a ureteral injury. So, I would only put um, a sheath across the UPJ if I knew that it was a wide open UPJ, if the patient was pre-scented, if it was just, you know, almost acid, It was like sliding in there just in the process of me going back and forth or rare exceptions where it's a very infectious looking stone or I really, really want to keep the intrarenal pressure as low as possible.
0: So um, we saw from your video, Mike, that you perform um, kind of a, uh, a cool exit strategy in that you're, you're sliding the ureteral access sheath back while leaving the ureteroscope static. So you can actually visually inspect the ureter. And if you get into some trouble, you can easily feed a safety wire through to maintain access. Kind of the, the, the description you gave of using the ureteral access sheath as a safety. Mo, one of the questions that came in for you, knowing Mike's practice, is do you think that there's a role for routine retrograde pilography at the, at the end of ureteral access sheath use?
2: The end of the case, um, I mean, I, I, I guess maybe I'm neurotic. I, I usually like to kind of one last look at everything, you know? And so that's my confirmation. I don't know if that's specific to having a ureteral access sheet or just ureteroscopy in general. Um, I, I feel like, you know, looking back at our music data, I mean, the complication rates are so low. So I think if you're going to ask it from a complication standpoint, are we seeing extravasation that you would need to do an RPG at the end? I, I don't know if music's data necessarily supports that. Uh, but I think just for clarifying, you know, stone-free and, and stone treatment, I think I think it is helpful to kind of make sure that you look back at the entire collecting system before you finish.
0: Yeah, that's 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 great. I think that's very good insight. Um, sometimes identifying a subclinical injury potentially um, with the retrograde is important. One of the questions that was posed um, uh, earlier is if you see that it's a really accommodating ureter, or for instance, the patient has been pre-stented, or they have a very hydronephrotic kidney. Uh, and say in that context, also a large stone burden. You know, play devil's advocate here. Why not just use the largest sheath that you can that you can fit up the ureter?
1: So I, I think that you can make an argument that you, you could. I just don't necessarily that know that you need to. Using a big sheath is definitely gonna save you time and you can basket bigger pieces. Um, but I think you just have to balance the potential risks of potentially injuring the ureter um against the, the benefits that you're looking at. And <clears throat> You know, for for what for me, in most cases, an 11-13 is going to allow me to lower the pressure in, in the in the collecting system. I'm fairly facile because we have a good, um, you know, we always have good assistance with us for basket extraction, and um, you know, we we kind of make a plan before surgery. But certainly, there would be cases where if it, if I knew I was going after a very large stone, I would you know try something a little bit larger. I'm curious what Dr. Joffrey would have to say about
2: that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think it's worth the with the the cost. I mean, I, I don't think you're getting that much bang for your buck in terms of ability to basket a significantly larger fragment when you're going up on size. So I, I think when you're weighing the risk benefit, I think I think the risk far outweighs the benefit in, in going to really large sheets.
0: So we're gonna have a really compelling talk later on, um, both from our uh, current fellow, uh, as well as from Dr. Shaw about ureteral stent use, but um, you know, I would assume, and maybe it's the wrong assumption, that in most cases in a stent-naive patient, right, so this is a person, Mike or Mo, who doesn't have a stent in before surgery, that you're pretty routinely placing a stent uh, in a patient who has a ureteral access sheath. Is that correct?
2: In the stent patient, yes. And then I try to, as best as I can, depending on scheduling, is also treat preoperatively with the uh, alpha blockers. Uh, I think that also kind of facilitates access sheath placement. Uh, but in a stent-naive patient, I will always place a stent post-op. What about you, Mike?
3: Yeah,
1: I think it's a it's a matter of uh, you know tol- stent tolerance. I'll, I'll be honest. Um, I generally practice with a, using a string, and uh, I would almost prefer to put a stent in. And if I'm nervous about the patient, giving them the potential to extract the stent early, I think it allows you a lot of procedural and post-operative flexibility. So um I do err on the side of putting a stent in and I tell the patients you know if you can tolerate this for um however long I want it I want to leave it then we'll leave it but if they're um not have if they're having very bothersome symptoms then I would just have them pull that stent early um so let's flip the script this time so
0: I said before that you've got a patient who's stent naive say you've got a patient who uh, was at another hospital and was stented for a, uh, either an, an infection or a proximal ureteral stone, the stone migrated to the kidney. You're now treating them, either of you in the operating room, they've been stented for two weeks before your your definitive procedure uh, and the ureter looks okay. Do you have any reservations with not leaving a stent at the end of a case where a ureteral access sheath was used in the pre-stented setting? I, go for it, Dr.
1: Joffrey.
2: No, I, I I actually don't. I think when we when you know I think uh, again same thing. Looking back at the music data and seeing, you know the the infrequency of negative outcomes, right? That's what we're, we're we're kind of trying to prevent with the stent is you know that septic patient that we're worried about. I mean it's such a, a rare event in the pre-stented patient that uh, I actually don't have that concern. Almost always don't have that concern right now.
1: Yeah, and I would agree with that. I, I don't think you need to leave a stent. I think you know if you are going to leave a stent, a short-term stent with a string. Um, is an option. I don't think that's a, that it would it'd be the wrong thing, I think, to, to put the stent in for no, if you didn't see anything or if you didn't have any infection, you know, if it looked good otherwise.
0: Okay. Well, um, I, I again thank all the uh, folks who are tuning in um, uh, and all the questions you guys have posed. Please continue to keep them coming as we move through segments. Um, we're going to begin to transition now into our next uh, series of talks. Um, Thanks so much, uh, Mike Borofsky and Mohamed Jaffrey, for taking some time on a Wednesday night. uh, And we'll begin uh, now with our next segment of the uh, Skills Workshop. Thank you. So thanks, everybody. That was great discussion. Um, We've got a treat for you next. Uh, What I'm going to be presenting to you is a case scenario. um, And following this, uh, two esteemed surgeons, Dr. Margaret Pearl, Dr. Peggy Pearl from UT Southwestern, and Dr. Kershid Ghani from the University of Michigan will be, be presenting somewhat of a point counterpoint with regard to basket extraction techniques with Dr. Pearl and dusting techniques with Dr. Ghani. With regard to this case, as you can see here on the screen, this is a 48 year old uh, patient whose past medical history includes obesity with a BMI of 46. He presented with gross hematuria and flank pain and you can see two representative CT uh, slices, both an axial and coronal, coronal image with a 1.2 centimeter lower pulse stone You'll have to take my word for it that the Hounsfield units are 1200 uh, and uh, his skin to stone distance precluded performing shockwave lithotripsy as a primary treatment choice. So I'm gonna turn it over based on this case to Dr. Pearl who's gonna discuss uh, basket extraction techniques. Thank you, Dr. Pearl.
4: Thank you, Dr. Da. I've long admired the music and now the ROCKS consortium and therefore it's really a pleasure for me to have the opportunity to participate in this workshop. As far as this case is concerned, I perform ureteroscopy the same way I do it every time. And that is to obtain guide wire access, to place and maintain a safety wire. I've never regretted having placed a a safety wire. Use a ureteral access sheath when indicated and I use it most of the time. Make every effort to minimize intrarenal pressure. Fragment the stone and manually extract all the fragments directly inspect the ureter upon exiting, and then selectively establish drainage. And I admit that I place a stent most of the time. My go-to guide wire is a 0.035 inch double flexible tip extra stiff guide wire. But if I can't negotiate that guide wire through a tortuous ureter, I pass a five French angiographic catheter over the guide wire and then replace it with an angle tip hydrophilic guide wire. That, either with or without the use of a torque device, should allow me to negotiate the tortuous ureter and advance the guide wire into the collecting system. But I always replace a hydrophilic guide wire with a more secure, less slippery slippery guide wire. Some have advocated the use of safety wireless ureteroscopy where the safety wire or the ureteroscope actually acts as the safety wire. While that may be safe for a dusting strategy, I think it's not safe for a basketing strategy. The only time I eliminate the use of a safety wire is if I cannot pass the ureteral access sheath with the safety wire in place. In that case, if the access sheath can be passed into the collecting system, I feel that it's safe to proceed with fragmenting the stones and manually extracting the fragments through the access sheath. There are a number of advantages to using a ureteral access sheath. It facilitates multiple entries and exits from the ureter, which is necessary in the case of a basketing strategy. It also avoids the effect of ureteral edema in causing binding of the ureteroscope in the intramural ureter. But perhaps at least as important, if not more important, is that it maintains low interrenal pressure, which therefore improves visibility as well as safety. When I pass an access sheath, I disassemble the access sheath and pass the inner dilator first. If the inner dilator passes easily, then I pass the reassembled access sheath directly under fluoroscopic guidance, making sure that the guide wire can move easily within the ureteral access sheath. As a caution, never use an excess sheath that won't pass into the ureter. Don't force it. Either downsize the access sheath or abandon its use altogether. I think a 10, 12, 14 French ureteral access sheath is a good size and it's accommodated by most ureters. Pressurized irrigation is used in most cases to maintain visibility, but use irrigation judiciously. You don't want to cause so much pressure in the collecting system that you blow out a calyx and cause a subcapsular hematoma. There are a variety of commercially available uh, irrigation devices. I like the single action syringes. In this case, this is a barred irrigator because it allows moment to moment control of irrigation so that when I don't need extra irrigation pressure, I don't have to use it. One of the most controversial topics in endourology today is the strategy for stone fragmentation, whether it's a dusting strategy or a basketing strategy. Dusting involves low energy, high frequency settings where the goal is to paint the stone so as to produce dust that can spontaneously pass down the ureter and consequently a ureteral access sheath is not necessary. A basketing strategy utilizes a moderate energy and frequency settings, I prefer an energy level of 0.8 joules and a, and a frequency of eight to 10 Hertz. The goal is to fragment the stone just small enough to be able to clear the ureteral access sheath, which is generally three to four millimeters depending on the size of the access sheath. I then repeatedly retrieve the fragments using either a basket or grasper, and consequently a ureteral access sheath is required in this case. There are a variety of commercially available nitinol retrieving devices. There are different configurations of baskets and there are graspers, as well as combination grasper baskets. And my go-to nitinol retrieving device is the Cook Medical Engage. Uh, this is a combination basket grasper device. I think baskets are best for displacing stones from an inaccessible lower calyx to a more accessible mid or upper pole calyx before stone fragmentation or to facilitate stone uh, retrieval. Grasping devices, on the other hand, I think are safest when you're repeatedly removing stones from the collecting system because they are reversible devices. When When fragmenting a stone, it's important to Uh, basket the stones repeatedly through the ureteral access sheath. And you can see with the N-gauge device, we grasp the stone and can efficiently, repeatedly retrieve the fragments from the collecting system and from the access sheath. If a fragment gets stuck at the ureteral access sheath, as you see here, then if you simply release the grasping device slightly, it allows the stone to reprofile and align itself for the ureteral access sheath and can be readily retrieved. In the case when a fragment is repeatedly being uh, stuck at the access sheath or in a narrow ureter, it's helpful to double load the N-gauge grasping device along with a 200 micron laser fiber, which can be accommodated in this case by an applied medical urocele or by any endoscopic valve. When you double load these devices, you can see that you can then play the scope just like an instrument with the strings moving in and out either simultaneously or individually depending on whether you're fragmenting or grasping or doing a combination of both. This shows fragmentation of a a hard stone. This looks like a calcium oxalate monohydrate stone. And you can see that both devices have been loaded into the the working channel of the ureteroscope. In this case, the fragment is stuck at the access sheath, So you can simply advance the laser fiber onto the stone, fragment the stone until it's small enough to be readily withdrawn through the access sheath. You just have to be careful not to fire the laser on the wires of the basket. After the stone has been fragmented and all the fragments have been been retrieved, then we withdraw the ureteroscope along with the access sheath while carefully inspecting the ureter to assure that there has not been any inadvertent uh, or unrecognized injury to the ureter. But the basketing versus dusting strategy was looked at in the EDGE Consortium, which is the Endourology Disease Group for Excellence Consortium, which performed a prospective but not randomized trial comparing patients undergoing ureteroscopy with five to 20 millimeter stones with either a basketing or a dusting strategy According to the preference of the surgeon, because it wasn't a a randomized trial, the stone area was larger in the dusting group compared to the basketing group. Although the Hounsfield units as a surrogate for stone density was comparable between the two groups. Not surprisingly, ureteral access sheets were used 100% of the time in the basketing group and only 16% of the time in the dusting group. The mean operative time was longer in the basketing group compared to the dusting group because it is a tedious and time consuming process to repeatedly manually retrieve the fragments and the stone free rate was 16% higher in the basketing group compared to the dusting group, and that was statistically significant. However, on multivariate analysis, after controlling for confounding factors such as stone size, there was no difference in stone free rates between the two groups. There was also no difference in reintervention or readmission rates in the short term, but I think it's important to see what the report will show in the long term. El Nahas and colleagues also compared uh, a dusting and a basketing strategy in their review of 107 consecutive patients undergoing ureteroscopy with a dusting or a basketing strategy, in which they imaged patients with CT at two months. They too found that operative time was longer in the dusting group compared to the basketing group and stone free rate was 20% higher in the dusting group compared to the basketing group, although they did not perform multivariable analysis. After uh, the stone has been treated and the ureteroscope removed, it has been standard practice to place a ureteral stent at the conclusion of the procedure. Although a number of meta-analyses have now shown that in at least select cases the ureter may be safely left unstented, however, if a ureteral access sheath is used, there is some evidence that it is probably safest to place a ureteral stent. And when in doubt, place a stent. So, in conclusion, be consistent. Use a safety wire, you won't regret it. Don't force a ureteral access sheath. Minimize irrigation so as to minimize intrarenal pressure. Fragment as little as possible because fragmentation translates into longer operative time and potentially higher stone-free rates. And finally, on stents, it's dealer's choice, but if you're using a ureteral access sheath, it's probably safest to stent. So thank you very much for your attention, and now I'll turn it back to Dr. Ghani.
5: Thank you, Dr. Pearl for that fantastic lecture. And now it's a great pleasure and honor for me to give a talk and explain how I do my dusting technique, especially in relation to lower pole lithotripsy. These are my relevant disclosures. Today I'm going to go through a couple of things. I'm going to discuss my aspects around counseling, uh, pre-operative um, factors. I'm going to spend a lot of time mostly on the operative uh, aspects and strategy, and then quickly close on some post-operative um, uh, perspectives and follow-up. The most important thing when I'm undertaking surgery with uh, the patient for kidney stone disease, I really try and listen to the patient and determine uh, what it is that their priorities are, what it is that they're looking to gain from the operation. And And when I'm in the operating room, I'm very focused on keeping my moves and my steps to the minimum. And my philosophy is less is more. I'm focused on making sure the patient has a painless experience. And while I'm operating, time is a really big factor. I don't want to take too long on maneuvers. When I speak to the patient in the clinic, I determine their preference for stent emission. If they are interested in stent emission, I'll explain them the risks of stent emission, um, how that might impact residual fragments, and, and some factors will prevent me from placing stents in patients, especially if there's a prior history of sepsis or there are unique social circumstances. But the bottom line is, every patient is unique and you need to take a personalized approach. When it comes to stenting, you know, in general, these are my rules for can I uh, avoid a stent? And so for this particular case with 1 to 1.5 centimeters, it's usually a maybe. Uh, When I start uh, surgery beforehand, pre my patients are placed on alpha blocker therapy seven days before surgery. And I got this from Dr. Clayman because I think it does uh, facilitate and ease urethral access. I spent a lot of time with the patient as long as my clinical care coordinator in the clinic understanding and explaining both stent symptoms and how to manage pain with medication. And I use the music urology materials for this uh, freely available on our website. In the operating room, I'd like to now take you through the 10 steps and they're listed here. And I'm gonna go through each one, one by one. So first thing is overall strategy. In the operating room, we have a board, as you can see here, what I call the strategy board with all the equipment that's available for me to use. And I'll tell the nursing team what to open and what to have available in the room. Because the thing that I hate is if I want equipment and they can't find it, that is a waste of time. And so my goal here is to communicate my strategy to the team and to improve my overall operating room efficiency. I communicate with the anesthesiologist, especially when I'm doing kidney stone uh, dusting, because for me, movement, excessive respiratory movement can be an interference for accurate targeting and for a bloodless procedure. So I tend to will request endotracheal intubation for these cases. And sometimes I even may ask for apnea. When it comes to guide wires, I may use one, two, or I sometimes may not use none. If I'm doing flexible urethroscopy without a sheath, I don't use a safety wire. I'll use a working wire that's a sensor. I'll get my scope into the kidney and then and I'll remove it. If the patient is pre-stented, I may not even use a wire to intubate and access into the kidney. If I'm using a, a, a sheath, the sheath that I like to use is what's called a parallel design sheath, and it uses only a single wire, as you can see in this video, and then it becomes the, uh, the safety wire. If I don't have a parallel design sheath, I use a standard sheath, and then I use two wires, because I do like to have a safety wire when I'm using an access sheath. So let me tell you about my rules for sheaths. I use sheaths when the stones are big, bad or ugly. So if it's a big stone and I think I'm going to spend more than 20 minutes of lithotripsy time because I want to promote the low intrarenal pressure, even though I'm going to do no retrieval, I like to use an access sheath and it allows me to increase my irrigation rate so I can see better. If the stone has an infection risk or if if it's a hydronephrotic kidney, I'll also use an access sheath. And if the stone is extremely hard and I might need to do a hybrid technique where I'm going to dust and then retrieve, I will then use a sheath. If I'm using access sheaths, I use a smaller sheath if they're uh, not pre-stented and the sizes are shown here. And if they're pre-stented, that's when I'll use a larger access sheath. And if I'm not using access sheath, I routinely place a 12 French red rubber catheter into the bladder to keep the bladder decompressed because I think it helps uh, lower the overall pressure. So next thing is scope selection. Overall, if I'm going to do a stentless urethroscopy, I prefer the smallest fiber optic scope. And in our department, that's a P6 or a P7. And again, my philosophy is less is more. If the patient has been pre-stented, I can use the reusable digital scope. But if I think there's a tough lower pole angle, this is when I'll consider using a single use scope, such as a view um, And then some aspects around targeting on the left and the right kidney. If it's a left kidney, lower pole stone, and I think it might be a difficult case. I'm also thinking of the lithium, but I'm also thinking of a the because these scopes that you'll see have a different working channel direction compared to the lymphoscope, and if I'm using the right uh, kidney, uh, lower pole, that's when I'll use an scope. and I think it'll be better uh, shown in the next slide here, where you can see that with the Olympus scopes, the working channel is at nine o'clock, so the laser fiber is coming out at nine o'clock, which is well suited for treating a stone in the right kidney, as you can see in the video. And in the lithar view, with the laser working channel coming out at three o'clock, you can see here it's in a much better position to break up the stone. And it's not in the way of the impacted mucosal edema. And this is in the lower pole. With respect to laser fiber, I like to use a small 200-core laser fiber. It provides better vision. It's more versatile. Definitely can get you into the lower pole, and it provides a smaller chip when it comes to a dusting technique. And these days, you have ball tip laser fibers, which I think are very useful, especially for tough angles. You can keep the scope deflected and then advance the ball tip into the scope without having to worry about breaking your, your scope. Next thing I want to talk about is irrigation. Um, So the standard technique may be a 100-centimeter saline bag without irrigation, but then I'll use pressurized saline, and my standard is the same bag at a a one-meter height with 150 millimeters of mercury manual on the bag applied. And you can see that the flow rates will vary if you have a basket or no basket. And, and, And those are important things to consider in terms of the flow rate. When it comes to irrigation, the other thing is I have I use a three way stopcock, as you can see in these videos, and this allows me to put a syringe to both aspirate and evacuate fragments, which I do at the end. And and that's, that's the metal stopcock, as you can see in the video, allows me also to tweak the dial so I can increase and decrease my flow rate accordingly to the part of the procedure that I'm in. So let's talk about the setup. So the first thing I do is I've always pushed the patient into a head down, Trendelenburg position, as you can see in this video here. I think it helps with controlling the fragments, especially when I'm dealing with renal pelvic stones. And after I push the head down, what I then do is I always nudge the stone with the scope from a renal pelvis location into an upper or an interpolar location, as you can see in these videos. Now, with the lower pole, that may not be possible, but overall, I like a head down and I always try and nudge the stone into a better location if possible. I then have to select my laser settings, and the first thing I'll do is I'll select a low pulse energy and a high frequency to do contact laser lithotripsy. and the And the aim here is to debulk the stone, make it small and small as one entity, and not fracture it into multiple fragments. And my laser settings will depend on the laser system that I have available. And you can see here a variety of settings are used with different laser systems. In the lower pole, should you basket or not? You can't always basket a stone out of the lower pole, as you can see in this video here. It's lodged into the lower pole. So in these scenarios, I have no hesitation to do incite your laser lithotripsy, and I will incite you all the way until I get small fragments. I won't fragment, crack, and extract them. But if the angle is very tough, and it is a mobile single stone, I will basket, displace those into an upper pole location. If there are large stones, as you can see in this case uh, where I'm, uh, lay, where I'm uh, doing inside situ laser lithotripsy of a large kidney stone, I, I, the goal here again is to use a dusting technique to debulk and systematically shrink the stone. I try not to fragment it. You can see here in this particular video, there's a lot of movement of, of the stone on the laser fiber. And that's because the patient was intubated with an LMA and I couldn't get proper respiratory control. So I go back to the original strategy. Anesthesia and control is really important. Now I want to just take you through some aspects here about inside your lower pole laser lithotripsy. So this is a case where you can see the laser fibers in the lower pole and I'm doing contact laser lithotripsy using some low power settings and I'm and I'm systematically shrinking the stone and fragmenting it. But there will be a time when then it breaks up into multiple fragments. And at this point, I switch to a higher power setting using pop dusting where I'm breaking the fragments into smaller and smaller pieces. And I'm doing this intermittently laser bursts. and I get and I keep doing this more pop dusting to get smaller submillimeter fragments. And I look at the tip of my laser fiber, and this will tell me if the, the size of the fragment is small enough, such as 0.3 millimeters. And at the end, what I then do is I use my syringe and I flush the fragments out of the calyx. And if there are larger fragments remaining, I will then use a basket to extract them. But in this particular case, you can see here, I managed to flush all the fragments out. My exit strategy at the end is I give patients, um, I ask for patients to have some furosemide and, and some intravenous toradol for pain relief. If it's a large volume stone and I've used a sheath, I'll place a silicon stent for the time duration that you've seen here. And if the ureter is tight and I and I just need a little bit of dilation, I'll use a stent on a string, especially if the patient can manage the stent on a string for five to seven days. Otherwise, I won't use a string. In this particular case, I would have used a sheath and I would place a silicon stent for seven days. So, and when I'm doing stent emission, just to wrap up here, these are some of my principles, you know, shared decision making, I didn't use a sheath, small caliber scope, and some really important visual cues that there's sand in the ureter and sand in the bladder as you exit. That's a good sign that a dusting technique will have a good outcome. So these are back to my original guiding principles. And I think the key thing to remember about end urology is that if it doesn't work out, you can always stop, you can place a stent and you can come back. You can always live to fight another day. So I'd like to thank you for your attention. I'd like to now pass it on to Dave Levitt, our colleague and friend from Henry Ford Hospital who's gonna speak to us about the music data on lower pole uh, lithotripsy. Thank you very much. Thank you, David.
6: Thank you, Dr. Ghani. Now we'll transition into the Music Rocks experience with lower pole stones. The poor lower pole stone always seems to be singled out, always seems to need special treatment considerations. If you look at our total cohort numbers, we have about 32% of our stones we find in the lower pole. That's around 1250 stones, a thousand of which we're finding less than a centimeter, and about 250 of which are from one to two centimeters in size. If you look at the pie charts on the right-hand side, you'll find that no matter how we break the size down, we pretty much do the same thing for treatment, where two-thirds of the time we use shockwave lithotripsy, and about one-third of the time we're treating these stones with ureteroscopy. This is interesting um, when you can pair it to some of the guidelines out there, in particular our AUA guidelines, which suggest for lower pole stones, one centimeter or greater, or greater than one centimeter, ideally shockwave lithotripsy should not be offered as the first treatment recommendation. Now what's not captured and what comes into this final treatment decision are things like stone density, skin to stone distance, infundibulopelvic angle, and at the end of the day, In the office what actually happens between the patient and the physician when it comes to shared decision making and as we all know this and patients perceptions especially things like when it comes to stents have a big impact on what they may actually choose for treatment on this next slide on this next graph you'll see we have the very large practice variation uh, when we treat these lower pole stones on the the blue the darker blue you see is your ureteroscopy data And the lighter blue or the cyan is the shockwave data. On the far left side of the graph, we have some practices that will treat almost exclusively with ureteroscopy more than 90% of the time. And then you can go to the far right side of the graph and you got a handful of practices doing the exact opposite. They're treating almost 90 to 95% of the time with shockwave lithotripsy. Um, What you'll also find if you look at the two rows across the bottom, we actually have some high volume practices on both sides of the spectrum. So this is one of the interesting things that we like to uh, dive deeper into in music is why is it that we have this big practice variation and can each of these practices, may we learn from each other? On this next slide, you'll see our actual stone free rates when we compare ureteroscopy and shockwave lithotripsy at the different treatment sizes. Um, What you can see is across the board, ureteroscopy tends to do a significantly better job than shockwave lithotripsy at clearing the stones. Um, And what you'll also find is that um, these data, when you compare them to the original or the about 20-year-old lower pole one and two studies, the numbers, the absolute clearance rates are actually fairly similar. In addition, you can see when we look at our post-operative imaging information, about half the time the ureteroscopy patients will get a post-op image, and about three-quarters of the time the shockwave lithotripsy patients will get a post-op image. These images include KUB, ultrasound, and CT, and to be captured, usually they need to happen within about 60 days of the index procedure. So to recap, there's significant practice variation when it comes to treating lower pole stones in our collaborative. Across the board, we found that ureteroscopy did a better job than shockwave lithotripsy at clearing the stones. Uh, However, the total stone clearance rates are still pretty humbling at best. So I'd like to thank you for your attention and we'll move on to the open discussion part of this webinar. Uh,
0: and uh, Dr. Pearl and Dr. Ghani, that was just a tremendous effort uh, of force, uh, from our experts surgeons and the context from the music data is really what makes the CQI or the collaborative quality initiative that we have here really cool. Um, we've had a couple questions come in from the chat. Uh, at the tail end of our first uh, um, chat ending, Michael Cotant, who's a great partner urologist up at War Memorial Hospital here in Michigan, uh, questioned, if you're leaving a stent on a string, what would you consider short-term and long-term stenting? I wonder if either Dr. Levitt or Pearl or Ghani could comment on that.
4: Sure. I'll I'll take that. So I would consider short-term stenting, you know, somewhere in the three to seven day range and long-term stenting, you know, if you're talking long-term stenting and with regard to a ureteral injury, I think you're looking at, you know, a three to six week period of time, depending on the severity of the injury. And I think if you're stenting someone who was already stented, then a, a few days of stenting is certainly adequate. I generally, uh, leave stents in for about seven to 10 days, I'd say. Part of it is just the convenience of when it's, it's convenient to have them come into the office to have it removed. And I tend to think that at seven to 10 days, you've sort of surpassed the, the time of maximal um, edema and the ureter and, and, and hopefully reduce the likelihood that they're going to have colic when the stent's removed.
0: Thanks, Peggy. Kirshen, question for you. What's the longest you would leave a stent on a string?
5: So my minimum days with a stent on a string in a patient who's stent naive is five days. Uh, And I I used to do three days and I found that that patients when the stent was removed actually complained of pain and they had spasm. And then I looked into the data and in fact, physiological data from the pig work shows that maximum dilation starts to happen around four or five. So I think that ureters are in spasm and I agree with Dr. Pearl's comment about seven days that they're dilated and then you can remove the stent. So minimum days for me with a stent on string is five. And your question Casey was, around what, what, what's my longest on the string? On a string, yep. You know, if I'm getting to the threshold of seven, I get nervous with a string. So if it's seven and more, I, I won't do a string. Uh, there, there's a reason then, you know, and the philosophy with a string is, you know, as I always tell the residents, like you have gotta be prepared in your mind to be told by the PACU nurse, the stent is out. And are you okay with that? And if you're not gonna be okay with that, don't use a string.
0: Yeah, I think those are words to live by and I think that's very insightful. If there's any question that the stent's going to come out prematurely um, because of that string, I think that uh, erring on the side of not leaving one makes total sense. Dave, um, what would you say in your practice is the proportion of patients that you're leaving with stent on string uh, versus bringing them back to the office for removal?
6: For us, you know, again, it's sort of practitioner dependent. For me, a lot of times I'm probably around, my preference is to leave with the string a lot of times, and that's probably turned into about 50, 60%. Some of that'll be more patient makeup. Um, and the things that come into my mind, like you said, if I'm more concerned about an infection patient, um, someone that I think is highly reliable, these type of things will play a role whether or not we'll leave the string. Just to what Dr. Ghani had mentioned, sometimes I pretend to leave the string to my advantage where In a way, I almost would like it if the patient accidentally pulls the stent out at home, maybe on day four or five. But to the other point, I think you have to be okay with the um, the stent coming out early. And if you really can't stomach that or it'd be a problem for the patient, you should not leave the, or I think you shouldn't leave the string. Um, And
0: then Dr. Pearl, we had a question come in. does basket extraction equal sheath for every single one of your cases? Like, let me give you a hypothetical. Say you've got a patient who's just horribly symptomatic. We're not talking about a distal ureteral stone where you might choose a semi-rigid scope, and obviously you're not using a sheath. But say a proximal stone that's five millimeters in size, so you know that uh, you're going to crack it into a, you know, two pieces conceivably and pull it out. Would you ever consider not utilizing a sheath for basket extraction or say for a smaller renal stone in the patient who's symptomatic?
4: I'll consider not using an access sheath, but honestly, I I try it in most cases, unless I'm going to go up into the kidney and and take out a stone that I don't have to fragment at all. I mean, I find that your visibility is so much better with an access sheath because of the improved flow um, that I I, it's completely noticeable to me when I'm not using an access sheath. So I, I really like it, not just because of the number of fragments I have to retrieve, but because of the improved visibility. So I tend to err on the side of of leaving a sheath. In fact, the time that I'm least likely to leave a sheath is in some patients, for instance, patients with RTA or or who are passing stones all the time and have huge ureters. I feel sometimes impeded by the access sheath. I can get bigger fragments out without it. And I just drive up and down the ureter and you can take out these huge pieces. So those are the patients I may not use a sheath because there just isn't one big enough to bring out the pieces out of their ureter that that their ureter will accommodate. So I, I tend to err on the side of an access sheath. Unless I'm literally going up to retrieve a, a tiny stone in the kidney that I'm going to remove intact.
0: Um, another question that we got um, from uh, someone who's attending is with regard to energy settings that you're using in ureteral versus renal stones. Um, Dr. Pearl, from your talk, it seems that you're, you know, for your fragmentation approach, is using somewhere in the 10 watts range of energy. So probably not applicable to this, but Dr. Ghani Kirshid, um, are you uh, minimizing energy use in the ureter relative to the kidney? And what are your watt thresholds that you
5: might use? Yeah, I, I think it's a really important point to discuss amongst the group, which is I, I'm like Dr. Pearl. When it comes to the ureter, I won't go beyond 10 watts. Uh, I'm quite concerned about high power settings in the ureter and in terms of causing any, if there's a potential for heat Generation with fluid warming, uh, you know, and and so I, I will keep 10 in the ureter, but in the kidney I'll go up to 40 watts as long as I've got a good level of irrigation and I've got other mitigation strategies. So I can go much higher in the kidney. And I think the with the new lasers and the advanced systems that are coming out, these energy levels that are available to us are expanding. And so we've got to be quite mindful about that.
0: And then, I guess for everybody here, maybe Dave, you could start with this one. Does your technique, uh, meaning whether it's a basket extraction approach or a dusting approach, impact how you follow these people postoperatively? Dave presented some nice data uh, that Dr. Earl has commented on in the national press about how you know we could stand to do better as urologists with how we follow people with imaging afterwards. Do you feel that imaging is warranted for all folks afterwards? Will you image differently if you're basket extracting Dr. Pearl versus dusting Dr. Ghani? What are your guys' takes on that, Dave?
6: Maybe you could lead us off here. Absolutely, I think this is an area last year or so has generated interest among a lot of us because I don't think we actually know the right answer. I know that's something we're working on ourselves in music and many others. Uh, and I think it, like a lot of these things, probably it's not an all or none. Um, I think a lot of us, if we see preoperative hydronephrosis, if you get in there, of course, if there's an injury or if you find that uh, stone was impacted or you felt like it was, um, or you're worried you might have left fragments over, these are all cases where I tend to be interested in imaging the patient later, um, whereas if it's a pre-stented case and, or one that Dr. Pearl had mentioned where that ureter just seems like you drive a semi-truck through it, uh, I may be less inclined or less worried if that patient doesn't get a post-operative image. Dr. Ghani?
5: I, you know, I, I imaged a fair amount, and then I maybe recently have become a bit more judicious in my imaging. Uh, I, I think uh, I think it's important in all those cases that Dave mentioned. You know, especially if it's the impacted ureteral stone, where I actually will tell the patients in the pre-op, you know, look, I'm worried about a possible stricture here, either just from the impaction that you have, and also from the surgery that you're about to get from me, you know, it could be difficult. So I, because we can order scans, but unless the patients understand why the scans are being done, they may not understand that and get, and you know, and, and so it, it I, I think the data and music shows that maybe we don't image as much as a, as a state and nationally, but maybe the patients don't really have not been Counseled enough on on why these scans are important, so uh, I definitely think imaging is important. I, it doesn't change change my strategy in terms of its basketing or dusting. Uh, I I think definitely uh, work uh, in the kidney or ureter. I have to get some some type of imaging to determine safety.
4: Thank you, Peggy. Um, so I pretty much image everybody. I would say, except just as David said, those few patients that have such wide open ureters and they're. Um, Operated on so frequently from passing stones that you know before I would get to image them again, they're usually back in the operating room. Um, But but most other patients I do, and if I have just if I've taken out stones intact. Then I just get ultrasound imaging, and I don't get a KUB because I know that I've removed all the stones. But anytime I fragment, I get a KUB and an ultrasound. So you know, you want you you, you definitely want to determine if there are stones left behind. I find ultrasound so inaccurate in terms of assessing residual fragments. KUB is not that great either. But in the absence of using an ultra low dose CT, uh, I think the combination of the two is pretty reasonable. But I think it's always important to just make sure that. That um, they don't have hydronephrosis and any any um, silent
0: obstruction. We got a couple of questions. You can't have an endourologic meeting without hyper focusing on stents. So a lot of questions are coming into that regard, and we all know that they drive a lot of discomfort and uh, potentially stress for providers. And this question gets at that. Is there anything that you guys use in the, your practice beyond your own? you know, uh, Gestalt and or tracking systems to to prevent against the forgotten stent, which is a fear for, for any endo urologist doing a high volume of these cases. We see this sequelae of the forgotten stent. What about you, Peggy?
4: Uh, You know, I don't use any particular type of tracking system. I mean, I I send a message to my office at the end of each of my cases with, you know, letting them know when the patient needs to come in for stent removal. And because patients are so symptomatic generally with their stents, it's usually not a problem getting them back. You know, if, if, if my office doesn't call them within 24 hours, they're calling us. So I I don't find it to be a big problem in our private practice in our county hospital, much bigger problem Um, and and patients don't have phones and it's difficult to track them down. So um, I would say in our county hospital, we leave more danglers than not um, because it, it. tends to get them back um, to get their stents removed. Um, but they do have a system in our county hospital where they do keep track of patients because it, it is such an ongoing problem. And there are multiple sites where patients are being treated. So it's it's more organized. Uh, private practice, I think less of a problem. Aver, do you have anything to add to that?
5: No, I mean, I—it's tracking is is people have done multiple ways. I mean, when I was in England many years ago, we looked at a platform to do this, and you know, and it was quite novel then. I think now institutionally in our at Michigan Medicine, I know John Hollingsworth in our group has helped develop a an institutional tracking software, so that's taken the headache off. But I'll tell you, I only stent twenty to thirty percent of my cases, so uh, that's that's a major thing for me, and then half of those group are stent on strings. I completely agree with Peggy's comment on the, you know, the population. So where when I practice at the VA, a lot of my stents are on strings and dangles. And 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 I think, you know, not all the patients, by the way, want a string um, that some of them absolutely point blank refuse. Uh, you have to bear that in mind as well.
6: And Casey, I'll add for us, um, we use Epic, uh, but I think there's, you can do this with some of the other electronic medical records. That's what I think, Dr. Ghani, you were mentioning, um, where there's different ways to run reports or analyses. Um, You know, usually you have to work with some of your, uh, your sort of, your uh, computer teams, but they can generate, you know, when these stents were placed, Um, what we find some of the headaches are, if the stent is never uh, mentioned that it was removed, you you find that that data set becomes a little difficult then sometimes, um, especially when you're seeing the patient, you yourself actually remove the stent. We've got about a minute left before we're going to transition uh, again
0: to the next set of talks. Um, but uh, Peggy, I want to pose this to you. Um, you've you've been around the block. You've been doing this for a long time. You, and I mean that in the best way possible. They referenced the lower <laughs> poll paper. You probably Yellow wrote that when Jenkins. you were probably wrote that when you were a medical student. Um, but anyway, um, we're really struggling in the state of Michigan to understand. How we should image patients after ureteroscopy. You were instrumental in the clinical effectiveness protocol that was written by the AUA, um, which by no means is perfect, but offers us some guidance as urologists. Um, One of the questions we get often from our members is, you know, there is this perceived rate of silent obstruction after ureteroscopy for ureteral stones of up to 4% if you look at some of the data that came out of Duke. Uh, And the question always comes to us, you know, you're asking us to image more of these patients, but we're not really seeing these dead kidneys from the missed silent hydronephrosis. In your practice, can you recall instances where you found that case, that that, that dead kidney, that asymptomatic problem um, uh, that has changed your imaging practices?
4: Um, well, I, I wouldn't say my practice has changed. I mean, I, I always imaged everybody postoperatively and, and, and when we looked at the data with a clinical effectiveness protocol, which by the way, the, you know, the data is really weak. That's why it's not a guideline and it is just a clinical effectiveness protocol. Um, it's, it's essentially retrospective studies, you know, looking at all patients who underwent ureteroscopy and did they get imaged? Um, so I, that's been my practice. And, um, because I do image everybody, I, 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 You know, I I haven't picked up patients who have lost their kidneys, but I have occasionally found instances of silent obstruction. Um, Most of those patients will resolve. You know, I've had many patients who resolve ultimately over time. Some of them, you know, I was or wasn't suspicious of of there being a problem. But if they have hydronephrosis, then I will follow it up. And some of them, you know, don't if you get a renal scan, you'll find out that they're not really obstructed, but they have hydronephrosis they didn't have before. So, you know, clearly something happened in that ureter and it may not be functionally a problem. Um, But I think, you know, I'm not willing to take the risk to to miss out on that. So I want to identify that. I mean, I think you know, we're all more or less suspicious when we have a really impacted stone. Um, but there are patients that you're not suspecting it. The access sheath passed easily and you're surprised when they come in and have problems. So I think it's sort of a small price to pay and, and you know, relatively inexpensive uh, to obtain ultrasound and KUB imaging. Yeah,
0: very well said. I mean, from a person who's thought and written a lot about this, these are insights from an expert. So I appreciate that. Um, we are going to move on now to our next section, uh, session. I'm going to be inter, uh, introducing um, uh, uh, John DiBianco, who's going to be discussing um, our appropriateness work that we've done in the state of Michigan surrounding uh, ureteral stent appropriateness. So I'm going to turn it over to John and thanks for continuing to follow along with us.
3: Thank you, Dr. Dow for the warm introduction and thank you to Music for the opportunity. I truly stand on the shoulders of giants in presenting the results from years of work by Dr. Ghani, Dr. Dow, Dr. Spencer Hiller, and the entire Music Rocks team in the development of scent appropriateness criteria. The morbidity surrounding ureteral scents has been identified as a research priority by the AUA, and given the overarching goal of reducing unplanned healthcare encounters after stone treatment, scenting has been the major subject of much of investigation by Music Rocks. Approximately three-quarters of patients are stented at the time of ureteroscopy for many reasons. In this figure, looking at individual stenting rates, we find wide variation between urologists within music. Additionally, this finding does not appear to be volume dependent. The variation persists between urologists with 10 or more cases per year in blue and 50 or more cases per year in red, indicating at least to me that the decision to omit a ureteral stent is not clear. What is clear is that these decisions have consequences. When examining the registry, we find that rates of emergency department visits are higher for patients who are stented when compared to their risk-adjusted, matched, stent-omitted counterparts. The data indicates that stent placement increases the odds of an emergency department visit by 25%. Perhaps more importantly, what do our patients say? Structured interviews with our patient advocates produce these word clouds. Certainly, the stone experience can be quite awful and it is potentially compounded by scenting. So how did music bridge this divide, knowing that guidelines support scent omission in uncomplicated cases? Utilizing the RAND UCLA appropriateness methodology, which is the gold standard in reaching formal agreement about real world interpretation of science, a panel was convened. This included 15 urologists from a variety of practice types, an invited expert moderator, and an experienced local moderator. Previously discussed in detail by Dr. Hiller at our prior meeting, this was a rigorous process where more than 140 case scenarios were evaluated for appropriateness of stent omission. In the context of truly defining uncomplicated retaroscopy and appropriateness for stent omission, the goals accomplished by the panel were to provide guidance, to reduce practice and surgeon level variation, improve patient's quality of life, determine areas of uncertainty and or disagreement, and identify areas for improvement. In doing so, the Music Rocks criteria for stent omission was defined. To summarize, patients who are both pre-stented and or stent naive, who have stones less than or equal to 10 millimeters in either the kidney or the ureter, who have no evidence of infection at the time of ureteroscopy end up undergoing a ureteroscopy in which a ureteral access sheath is not used, where no ureteral dilation is required, and only a very small or no residual fragments remain, we recommend considering that patient for stent omission. Currently, in this target population, stenting rate is 60%. So guidelines recommend stent placement for complicated cases and the vast majority of patients worldwide have since placed at the time of ureteroscopy. When we look at the music registry, approximately 35% of all ureteroscopy cases may be appropriate for stent omission, demonstrating a substantial opportunity to improve patient quality of life and prevent unplanned healthcare encounters. But no guideline or recommendation can take precedence over patient safety, urologist clinical judgment, and shared decision-making. Therefore, we understand that no scenario is inappropriate for stent placement. So is there a way to improve outcomes when a stent is placed? To help answer that question, it's my honor to introduce Dr. Oja Shah, Professor of Urology and Director of Endourology and Stone Disease at Columbia University Medical Center, who, among other things, has expertise in the use of novel ureteral stents. Thank you, Dr. Shah, and the floor is yours. Thank you, Dr. DiBianco
7: for the introduction. Uh, My topic today is going to be about when and how to place a ureteral stent. And this is really a talk about silicone stents in general and maybe some newer stent technologies that are out there. These are my disclosures. I, I, do, have particip- I do participate in, in, in work with two companies, Boston Scientific and Coloplast, which are both involved in uh, the, in the uh, creation of stents and the manufacturing of stents. So their, their products will be involved in this talk. Okay, so ureteral stents in general from the AUA guidelines typically uh, have not been recommended for all surgeries. Following ureteroscopy, clinicians may omit a ureteral stent uh, in patients that are meeting all of the following criteria. Uh, No evidence of ureteral injury, no anatomic impediment to stone fragment clearance, normal contralateral kidney with normal renal function, and no plans for a secondary ureteroscopic procedure. Also, for shockwave lithotripsy, we do not recommend routine stent placement. Uh, and This improves quality of life because stents decrease quality of life, and there's been shown to be no improvement in stone free rate when using a stent for shockwave lithotripsy in general. However, we all, in addition to that, we also recommend um, placement of a ureteral stent prior to ureteroscopy should not be performed routinely. Uh, this is not, there, been, there is some data that shows that there's improvement in stone-free rates with pre-stenting, but that does not override the added care costs for placing the ureteral stent and the negative impact on quality of life associated with stents in general. The question is, despite all of these recommendations by the guidelines, uh, which I had the honor of being part of uh, in 2016-17, the vast majority of urologists still place a stent at the end of uncomplicated ureteroscopy. And the question really is why. And in my own practice, I tend to place a stent probably in 90 to 95% of patients, except when I have a very uncomplicated case, when I perform a pure dusting procedure where I think that the stent can be omitted, Or any patient that has had a stent preoperatively placed for infection or for some other reason, secondary to obstruction, where I can leave them without a stent postoperatively. But really, stents are the main, one of the major problems related to ureteroscopic surgery, uh, and there are some methods to reduce stent discomfort, some of which is related to medications that are out there, um, both non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents and using alpha blockers or anticholinergics to help uh, mitigate the stent symptoms. But there is some data showing that stent technology, including silicone stents, may improve uh, ureteral stent symptoms. So what matters most to patients? It's usually using a stent versus no stent after you And if there is a stent, how are we going to alleviate the stent discomfort that exists with it? And how long are we going to keep the stent in place? So what is the indwell time? There are two silicone urethral stents in the market in the U.S. As far as I know, one is made by Cook, called the Black Silicone or the Black Beauty by nickname, uh, and Col- Coloplast Image Stent, and that's the one that I use more commonly in our practice, just based on our contract with this uh, with uh, Coloplast at, from our institute. But my stent options are not limited just to that. As a person that does endourology for a primary uh, part of my practice, I actually have multiple stents that are available. And I may be a little stent crazy uh, in the sense that I have stents that are used for different reasons at different times. But we carry the applied silhouette, which we use in some cases of extrinsic obstruction. It's a wire reinforced stent. We, use the, we have on Boston Scientific Stents, we have the Polaris Ultra. We have a Contour Multi-Length, which some of my partners like to use. We have Tria-Firm and Soft, which is a newer stent technology, which I'll talk about later. We have the Coloplast Imogen, which is the uh, primary stent that we use. And we have Cook's Resonance and Transplant Stents. So what's the ideal stent? There are many factors that go into an ideal stent, one of which is minimal discomf- discomfort. Then there's also the prevention of biofilm and encrustation, and then there's also the ideas of ease of insertion, radio opacity, no evidence of any migration with the stent, and biocompatibility. The most important thing probably to a lot of patients is decreasing discomfort. Uh, Silicone has been found to be more biocompatible than polyurethane, and we also try to limit our stent indwell time to about less than three to seven days. My common time for stent removal is around day five to seven. So there's been two studies looking at silicone stents in the recent, in recently. Um, uh, one out of Fran- primarily France and England and the other one um, I'm going to talk about in a moment. Um, the latest, uh, one of the latest studies is the of silicone hydro double loop ureteral stents on the symptoms of quality of life in patients undergoing flexible ureteroscopy for kidney stones. And this was a multi-center study that was random, randomized. And this study showed that a day, at day 20, the body pain index and the ureteral stent symptom questionnaire was improved when using the silicone imaging hydrostent versus the percuflex stent uh, at a statistically significant level, in addition to the body pain index. This also looked at the urinary symptom score, and they found that there was a benefit at day two at day seven, as well as at day 20, being the most profound at the day 20 uh, time period. Now, people always ask, why is day 20 relevant? Because we don't typically keep stents in that long, but there are patients that are pre-stented, patients that had an infection, patients that just have a stent indwell time that is longer afterwards for some sort of complication or stricture uh, following the procedure. So at day 20, you have the maximum benefit, but there was benefit at day seven as well for this imaging stent, which is a typical time when we take out these stents. So the primary results were that silicone stents in this study were associated with a significantly less pain, discomfort patient discomfort, and the authors at the end of the study recommend silicone stent use in patients who require stenting for stone disease. I also use silicone stents for the primary amount of my uh, as the primary stent for the majority of my patients, and anecdotally, I have found that silicone stents probably have less um, discomfort than the uh, polyurethane stents or standard stents that I use as well. Um, They probably lead to a little less dilation of the ureter compared to the other stents because they are softer, Uh, but it is usually not an issue for the vast majority of patients. Um, And the one thing that you also notice is that there's less encrustation of these types of stents, and you'll find that the urine is crystal clear when you go in to take out these stents compared to these cloudy urine that you get quite often with a polyurethane or other type of stent material. But my primary Recommendation is still early removal and removal at around day five to seven following your ureteroscopic intervention. In addition to that, this recent study out of, uh, by Godziev et al. showed that the, and this was again another stent study that uh, had stents in for approximately four weeks postoperatively, and comparing silicone versus polyurethane stents, there was an improvement in their visual analog scale at two weeks and prior to stent removal at four weeks. So anything that, continue, that has a longer indwell time up to approximately two weeks is shown to have a benefit with silicone versus polyurethane. And then the next two categories about no biofilm and no encrustation. Um, the selection of the stent material is very important, and there is silicone has been shown to be more has been, have less encrustation on the stents, uh, which is a benefit to the silicone material. There's a decrease in uh, stent colonization with this type of material, but there is a competitor in the market that's new, a novel coated stent uh, by Boston Scientific called the TRIA stent, which we've also incorporated into our practice for patients that have had stent encrustation in the past, have history of recurrent infections, possibly uric acid stones, things that. Will Potentially cause more encrustation of the stent in the future, or for long indwell times for malignant obstruction or other type of stricture disease where they're managed with an indwelling stent. This Boston Scientific stent has a coating called Perky Shield. It's a proprietary surface technology engineered into the outer and inner stent surfaces, which is supposed to decrease urine calcium and magnesium salt deposits. We have incorporated this into our practice as well and seen significant benefit and uh, decrease in dis- uh, decrease in stent colic and stent discomfort uh, by using this type of stent. Um, And then comes all the other categories. But really, some people um, are worried about the placement of a silicone stent because it is a softer material. Um, These are pictures of the silicone stent on the slide here. Um, And I typically will place, they're usually, silicone stents are usually best placed with a hydrophilic guide wire. So if you are using a six French stent, it almost invariably needs to be placed over a hydrophilic guide wire. And we typically will use a 0.035 inch guide wire. That being said, I most commonly am using a hybrid guide wire during my surgery. So I typically will place a seven French or an eight French stent with ease over a hybrid guide wire. So I don't have to waste an extra wire. I just place a seven French pretty easily over the uh, over the hybrid. and I typically use a 0.035 inch sensor hybrid guide wire. Um, uh, just as I said, it prevents the routine exchange of the wire just for the stent placement. Now, if you look here, this is this is how easy it is to place. The wire passes very easily through a seven French stent, which I'm demonstrating here. This is actually a hybrid guide wire passing through, and the stent is fairly lubricious, uh, being made out of silicone, uh, and it's very easy to pass a hybrid guide wire through it. This is the biggest challenge, though, because the polyurethane stents and the other stents that you may be used to do pass easier over hybrid guide wire compared to a silicone stent. There's a little bit of resistance with the silicone material, unless you're using it on a hydrophilic wire where it passes extremely smoothly. The other difference is that there is a, uh, there's a steering device where, they, where the stent is able to connect to, it's a steerable stent, it's able to connect to the pusher. So you can use the connection if you'd like. You can see on the slide here that I'm actually disconnecting the pusher through in the middle of this procedure when I start to withdraw the stent. And you have to be used to this different technique. The steerable stent is actually very popular in Europe, not very popular in the United States. But that same way that you can steer the stent allows you to prevent migration of the stent or placing the stent too far up and also allows you to release the stent exactly where you want when you, when you release the steerable portion of the stent. So, I do not use a cystoscope in most women, typically, when placing a silicone stent. I usually do do this over the wire and allow the stent to coil within the bladder easily after you remove the wire. I do use a cystoscope in most men or in complicated cases uh, in order to push the stent through uh, easier. One other trick to try and allow placement of the silicone stent if you decide to use it is that you can use lubrication. So I typically dip the stent in saline and then I lubricate it with surgery lube prior to placing it over the wire and then it slides much easier. The other option is to also lubricate the wire and that allows the silicone stent to pass much easier. Takes a couple extra seconds during the procedure. And then, additionally, this has this positioner, as you see on the slide. This is steerable. It allows easy advancement and withdrawal of the uh, stent. But you need to release the positioner if the inner stylet is used. And you can see in the slide here on the picture, on the on the images, you can see that I'm pushing the, sl- the stent together with the uh, with the uh, pusher uh, and the steerable portion of the stent. You'll see this in the cystoscope; it happens automatically. You don't actually have to do anything special. The only reason it looks a little bit different here is because I'm doing this all outside of the patient. So what do I use? For the majority of my cases, I use do use the coloplast imaging stent. When do I not choose silicone? So when I have difficult strictures or malignant extrinsic obstruction, I tend to lean away from the silicone stent. If I'm placing tandem stents, I actually have some patients with tandem stents for strictures uh, that actually have the silicone stent and actually are much more comfortable with that compared to the standard polyurethane stent. If I need a stiffer stent, I'll use a metallic stent, very rare in my practice. I do use the wire reinforced stent by applied, and I use the TRIA firm in cases of malignant obstruction as well, especially for longer indwell time. The most important overall is patient education. You need a discussion at the initial visit about stent discomfort. You can give handouts to the patients, send out fly- send them messages in your in your electronic medical record so they remember what the stent feels like. There's online material for this. And I also find it very helpful to discuss this with the family member so that they will continue to support their patient, their family member postoperatively and remind them that the stent is uncomfortable. And we've told them that it's gonna be uncomfortable post op. Uh, This can lead to a decrease in ER visits, phone calls, and pain medication use. So how do you choose the right stent? Obviously, stone disease is expensive. Optimizing strategies to reduce dent discomfort for patients is very important, and the stent material is very important as well, in my opinion. It'll minimize, uh, again, very important to minimize stent dwell time. So we try and keep it less than seven days if possible. Use adjunctive measures to help the stent discomfort as well with other medications like alpha blockers and anticholinergics. And try and stay with non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents as much as possible. Go stent-free when safe and uncomplicated cases. And I try to choose silicone whenever possible. And I've actually converted many other people to silicone and they have seen the same benefit. And although it's anecdotal, we are working on more data to show that it is is probably beneficial in general. Thank you very much. Um, we're going to end the session on the lectures at this point in time, and we're going to move into an open discussion uh, with all of the uh, presenters in a moment. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Dr. Shaw. that was a great talk. Uh, we covered a lot of information there, and uh, I think one of the things that we see from the chat and we saw earlier is that a lot of Urologist questions surround this notion of when to place a stent. If I'm going to place a stent, what type? Uh, And certainly, industry has picked up on that. And so, we have a lot of options. Um, I think what struck me, and there was a question in the chat about stent size. Um, So, the question being, do you notice a difference in patients' discomfort, um, even say outside of a silicone stent, if you're using a a six French stent versus a seven French stent or one of the 4.8 French stents, which I believe that Applied also makes? So, do you notice that, OGIS, in your practice? size matters. What, I, what struck me from your talk is that you're actually talking about using a larger silicone stent um, so that you can get it over a non-hydrophilic wire and patients are still doing well. So it kind of blows up that notion of stent size.
7: Yeah, I personally have, that's a good question. I personally have not found that much of a difference. Sometimes if I use a five French stent, maybe it's a little more comfortable for patients, but I find no difference between six, seven or eight. And I primarily use the silicone uh, I've started to move into TRIA, the Boston Scientific TRIA a little bit, um, as well as we have the standard Polaris Ultra, which we've had long, you know, our long standing stent. But um, I don't find that much of a difference based on size. Seven, eight branches about the same as my oh, senses.
0: Yeah, and I think another thing that's very useful about this is uh, it's very easy. Uh, I know in my practice, I am relatively uniform in my stent use. I think what you spoke to today is that you can take an individualized approach to patients uh, and use various different stents for various different indications. Uh, just a show of hands from the people that are that are on uh, currently that are, that are moderating with me, who's using silicone stents in, in any cases and, and who would be using it routinely? So who's using it in any cases? Are you using it, Peggy?
4: No, I'm not. I've been toying with the idea of doing it. It just takes an act of God to change over, you know, what our, what our currently stocked stents are. But I think there's some compelling data to support it. And, and you know, without a doubt, patients don't tolerate stents and anything that's going to improve that is worth it. I mean, I have to say, you know, OGIS does take a very individualized approach. And I, I really uh, appreciate that. In my practice, what I found is just Patients do poorly no matter what the stent. And so I use the stent that I like. <laughs> I use the stent that's just easiest for me to place. It's all about me um, because it, the patients don't seem to do well no matter what I what kind of stent I use. So I use one that I can see well fluoroscopically, that isn't too slippery in my hand, so I can get it up very easily, um, that has good coil retention, just you know, whatever I like I use. Um, but I think the, the silicone stents are compelling. Uh, maybe that's going to be the way to go.
0: Well, Mike, I know you place stents in a, a large proportion of your patients. Are you
1: using a silicone stent routinely? Well, I've not used it for a lot of the uh, similar reasons, um, being that it is hard to change, you know, a hospital purchasing committee and to bring in a lot of new equipment. I'll be honest, I also have just accepted that there probably is going to be a baseline discomfort level with some of the patients. And and I find that it's easier a little bit on our workflow and in the OR to just stop, you know, a large number of kind of singular things because it does make for that moment where you have to put the stent in, we know where all the stents are because we use them every time as opposed to having, you know, a whole variety of different stents available that can add a lot of time. And I find that to be an incredibly frustrating portion of the procedure when you're kind of pause to look for um, a particular stent or a particular size. So I think the consistency of just having your go-to um, offers an advantage. Well, just another thing that you mentioned is that uh, silicone stent um, can be
0: a little bit more clear, different to place than the, say, percuflex stent that we're all very comfortable with. Do you have a sense for what the learning curve might be for, uh, for an endo-urologist? Did you Do you have any sense for that? Is it going to take you five cases to get comfortable with it? Uh,
7: Three, am I overthinking that? What do you think? No, you're not overthinking it. The first four or five times I tried it, I was not very comfortable with it because it's a little bit different feel. But after about five cases, super comfortable with it. But it's a training session with each resident when they first try it because nobody's used to the steerable stents with the connector uh, for the first few cases until they get used to it. But I would urge anyone that has not tried it, have their local rep bring them. Or if, you, if you're allowed to in your hospital, to try it for five to 10 cases, they can send over samples of that silicone stent I use by Poloplast or the silicone stent by Cook. Um, and it's, it's a world of difference, um, in my opinion. The one thing is that Mike brought it up with me just by text message, but there is no stent allowed. Uh, I mean, there's no string on these stents because they are softer material and they will tear out of the stent. So these do require um, ure- uh, cystoscopic extraction.
0: Do you have any okay. sense, just a question just came in from uh, Eric Stockley, He's a urologist in our group, in our uh, state that does a lot of ureteroscopy on the cost difference between a silicone
7: stent and some of the more commonly uh, used or broadly used stents? So it's a good question. They're about the same cost as the high-end stents of each company. So um, it would be comparable to Boston Scientific's Polaris Ultra and TRIA stents. TRIA is probably a little bit more expensive. They're probably a little bit more expensive than Cook's highest line stent. Uh, And they're comparable to BART Optima Inlay. So it depends on your purchase contract, obviously, with what you have with with, which companies from your institute or from your hospital. Um, But they're fairly comparable in price. No, I think one of the things that you've showed us here is,
0: you know, it's very easy to let anecdote drive your practice. And I think we all know that stents have for a long time all been negative trials as far as you know is a is a is a is a smaller size stent better should it cross the midline on a KUB um, should we use a, a softer material should we use one that doesn't have a J tip on the distal end and and what's been unique is now in a couple studies these silicone stents have really shown merit and so what we're trying to do in music is identify appropriate cases for stent omission but maybe what we should be considering too, is optimizing uh, uh, these more novel stents in the cases where we place ureteral stents. And I think some of the reservations may come from exactly what we heard from Mike and Peggy, which is that we're just not comfortable with it. There's many barriers uh, to getting things into our hospitals and clinics. Um, But certainly if this is something that's gonna benefit patients, it's something that I would be willing to consider. And I'm exactly like Peggy and Mike, I have not used this in my practice. Kershid has been beating this drum a little bit within our division at Michigan Medicine and has seen great success in his patients that have it, and it's become his standard of care. So I think it's something we should explore within music uh, potentially, and and we're uniquely positioned to do that. Um, Dr. Ghani, question for you. Do you have any tips or tricks about how you're placing the silicone stents, and are you choosing it for all
5: cases or are you using a different one for other cases? The, The point that Mike makes about the strings accurate right now it doesn't have a string i think the next generation product will have a string uh, so if there if i'm going to use a string i can't use it but in my dusting cases where i know i'm going to have some longer stent dwell time it's my go-to stent and i tell you i was skeptical too but what changed me peggy is that it was the patients you know and i had one patient whose cystinuria who'd had something like 36 uretroscopies you know and i, I we, we did we did his urethroscopy, I placed the silicon set. And the next day, you know, he said he, he went to work. He's never had that experience before. Now, I like to think it was the surgeon. And, you know, it was my first time operating on him. But I know that it wasn't. It was just, and I really, it was the stent. And I've had multiple repeats you know people patients who've had stents they're the ones that tell you there's a difference I agree with Mike there's always a baseline level and I think patients who've never had a stent they get a silicon stent going to have symptoms every it's symptoms sense are symptomatic so i definitely think that they've been in advance and i but i agree that we need more data and i'm looking forward to ojas when you guys put your data together and, and but in terms of um, insertion ojas i still use the hydrophilic wire to insert it i used to use the sensor and i found it a little bit tricky so i use a stiff hydrophilic because it's not it doesn't have a hydrophilic coating you know, so it doesn't glide along. So it's a little bit more tricky in that way. One spot I love using it is in the tubeless PCNLs because I can do it anti-grade, right? And Otis is nodding his head. You you, you just, because you've got the steerable introducer, it's an anti-grade insertion. It's so nice. You, you, you can pull back and pull forward. I love it when it comes to that. So I definitely think the steerable thing needs a little bit of training, but it's definitely one I, I do encourage urologists out there to give it a go.
0: I a comment from uh, Dr. Cotant, again, who had a good comment earlier, mentioning that the Cook silicone stent does come with a string attached to it. Um, I was not familiar with that. Um, is that something that you guys could comment on? He says he's u- using that stent and using it well
7: all the time with a string on Actually, he's right. The Cook does the cook one does have a string. I'm just used to the Coloplast one, but I rem- recall when I tried the Cook one in the past, um, we just don't have a good contract with Cook at our hospital, um, but I do recall them having strings and obviously he knows.
5: Yeah, but, thanks Mike. That's a great but, comment. But, you know, Dr. Poe makes a true point here. You know, act of God to get new equipment these days, right? And and I and I and I think, you know, I liked Oja's slide with all the different stents. I think we do have a duty to, to see that there are some equipped some specific basket I, that works well in this scenario and this thing works well in that scenario. And I, I think we gotta get away from this mindset of bulk contract purchasing. I, I know there's some economics aspects to it, but I definitely think there are different equipment in endurology that have different advantages, And but there is getting difficult these days to get these things purchased. Casey, the one other thing, and I think Peggy may be able to comment on this, is that
7: I, I have a lot of patients that we've, we've left strings on in the past, and they're very annoyed by the string. So I don't know what my, my, Mike seems to put a string on. Most people, Peggy, I don't know whether you do or not, but I remember one time you told me that strings are torture,
4: Yeah, I, I, I I, I, I rarely leave them. The only patients I leave them in are young men because they just tolerate cystoscopy so poorly. Um, But personally, I had one stent with a dangler and one without, and the dangler was just so irritating. It was just irritating all the time. Um, And with, you know, wasn't so fun without it either, but, but for sure I was much more, irritated by the string it just pulls and then it pulls at your bladder neck and that you know it's just a very uncomfortable sensation so I just from my own experience I project that on my patients and I tend to not leave it. Um, And, you know, and although, you know, I think it bears saying, although this is, you know, can never be the primary driver, but we are compensated for stent removal and sometimes compensated better than for the procedure itself. So, you know, your first goal has to be what's best for the patient. Um, And again, I project my own, uh, you know, experience with stents in that regard, but, um, but it is true that we are compensated for stent removal.
0: Very good point. I mean, there's economic drivers in everything that we do. I think we saw that a little bit in the lower pole data with regard to shockwave lithotripsy use. It's that classic balancing act between well-tolerated and maybe less effective. Um, we've gotten a question about when would you choose to use a larger size stent? Um, uh, I think we all know or have tried using smaller stents in patients that have previously poorly tolerated a six French stent, but are you ever reaching for larger stents? You touched on this a bit, o, just, but what, what
7: situations would you say, I got to use something a little bit bigger than six French? I use large. Well, I use seven for my primary, just because I use the hybrid guide wire and it goes over the hybrid guide wire very easily instead of opening up a new hydrophilic wire. But I tend to use bigger ones if there is baseline narrowing of the ureter. If I can put up a larger size stent where I could not do the ureteroscopy the first time, I'll put up a seven or eight if I can uh, to be able to ureteroscope them the next time around. Or if I'm planning a second stage procedure on a ureteroscopy, because I know that I'm dealing with a larger stone size. Um, then I will plan for a larger size stent as well, and then the last scenarios are usually with uh, people that have strictures that I'm dealing with, where I'll use eight or two ten or a tandem stent contraption.
0: So, kind of pulling off that, a question came in: Is do you find, say, it's an impassable ureteroscopy? We've all experienced that. We tell patients up front we think we're going to be able to do this, but you know, there's a you know, a finite chance that we can't three to 5%. You're stenting a patient to come back later and fight another day. Do you find that the ureter does less intrinsic dilation using silicone versus some of these other stent materials?
7: So I actually thought that for the, for the beginning when I first started my silicone experience, and that's why I even mentioned it in my talk a little bit. But as I've gotten more and more experience with it, it's actually fairly comparable. Uh, what you'll see is that there's less edema at the ureteral orifice. The bladder looks pristine. The urine's clear. I find less bacteriuria in these types of cases. At one, at one point, I hopefully will be able to publish it. We are actually writing up our series of like ER visits and stuff like that with silicone versus our prior use of polyurethane or the regular standard stent material. And we've seen that we have decrease in ER visits and decrease in phone calls when we switched over to silicone. again, anecdotal.
5: Because we but had a case in the old where we were doing an exchange and we took the indwelling silicone out there's the new one was opened, and then nobody could work out which was the new stent and which was the prior stent because it's pristine. it, it yeah. lack of incrustation, lack of any discoloration. And, and we were like, okay, which is the stent that we have to put back in. So you have to watch out for that in some ways. And I think the lack of incrustation is, is some of the features that I think might be uh, of the symptoms. But we have to bear in mind that the data that this came from in Europe the stenting d- dwell times in Europe are pretty long, and United States, you know, we, none of us would have an active practice if we removed stents in our patients in four weeks. You know, we'd all be out of jobs. So, um, that, so we have to bear that data in mind. So I think more US level data is needed a- around some of this.
7: And remember, there's a lot of patients that get a stent put on an emergency basis, and then they have to get scheduled for surgery. And there's a lot of centers around the U.S. where your wait time for that next surgery is in three, four weeks, not one week or two weeks. And that, that is where the data may be relevant. Yeah. The, the, the stent discomfort at two, three weeks is actually beneficial.
5: And actually, during the COVID peak, we, I, in my mind, I was definitely, let's put silicon in because we just didn't know when they were going to get their urethroscopy for that reason.
0: Yeah, it's really important to provide that context because I think for most of us, we can be a bit myopic when we see the data and say, wait a second, I'm never going to leave a stent in for three weeks, but we've outlined three or four different scenarios where that would just be routine. So I do think that, you know, for that garden variety case where you're leaving one for seven days may not be a big deal, but that seven days can bleed into three weeks pretty quickly, given the workload that we all have. So I think the last thing that I want to discuss before we close is... Oh, just you brought up a really good point, which is that we can do everything we can in the operating room. But you mentioned preoperative education and expectation setting for patients is vitally important. You use a standardized template or a questionnaire or leaflet that you're given to patients before surgery. How, how do you educate folks?
7: I have a standardized leaflet that I, that I give them at the time when we book them for surgery, if they're booked through the office. I send, them, I send them a message in the electronic medical record to reinforce the same steps. And then on the pre-op counseling, right before we go into the operating room, I actually talk to them and their family member for a significant amount of time, spend some extra time talking to them about the stent and making sure their family member remembers how bad the stent may be, um, just so that they have somebody at home that will be able to talk through it, that be like, oh, this is what they told me it's gonna be like.
1: Set the bar low. I think it's yeah. bar really low, and they say and you didn't make it through the emergency, you didn't have to go to the emergency room, and you didn't, you know, call the office for
7: extra medications. You did really well. Congratulations, exactly. Yeah. But the other way that you can sell it, Mike, now when you switch, is you can be like, I'm going to put a new type of stent in you that's way better than that last stent I put in you, and then they'll actually probably come back 75% of the time I'd say and say actually it was better than my last stent i don't know if it's psychological but the urine is clear when you take it out
5: that's one thing that i found it's and, a, you know shocking. dr pearl did the, did a very nice study in your center and around all the encounters that occur right after you retroscopy and the phone i mean mike is joking but these phone calls the encounters are quite i mean what is is that anything changed Dr. Pearl, since you published that? You know,
4: sadly, no. I mean, we have tried everything. I mean, I, and it only became apparent when we were using electronic medical record because all of a sudden, every phone call, every my chart encounter, every emergency room visit you know, pops up in my chair, you know, in, in, in the EMR. And it was just like, okay, do I have any patients who don't call or come to the ER, you know, after ureteroscopy, it was getting to be embarrassing. Um, And, you know, we, you know, like, like everyone else, I mean, I, I spend significant amount of time talking about it in the office. I have a brochure that I prepared with one of our, OR nurses, you know, that goes through everything, all, everything to expect. We have a whole cocktail of medications, I go over it again at the time of surgery. They get information when they leave and it, you know, it, I, I, it still doesn't prepare them for it. Um, They're just uncomfortable. So it's, it's really the bane of our existence. I mean, we've got to just do better. I mean, if it wasn't for stents, ureteroscopy would be a really good procedure. Um, It's just, it's a miserable experience for a lot of patients. And I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I think we do a good job educating them. It's just not enough. I mean, they really are symptomatic.
0: Experts, as my witness, I think that I'm, i I may have to just give the silicone stent a try because I feel, I feel bad based on your guys' experience that I haven't, you know, given it a, given it a, a fair shot. And I agree, there's, there's barriers, but it sounds like there's some promise there. So maybe. Peggy and I can be accountability partners. I'll keep checking in with her to see if she's I, a silicone stent
4: yet. I'm on it. I would I mean, tell you, you talk just to Ralph it. Clayman, if you talk to Ralph Klayman, who used to use the old Black Beauty stent, which was a silicone stent by Cook, you know, he swore by it. He swore by it in the old days and then Cook stopped making it. Um, and then Olivier, you know, sort of started using it and was also sort of swears by it. And and just so these are people I trust. So, I, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to give it a shot. I mean, we've got nothing to lose. <laughs> I, I,
7: just out of interest, I, I had Olivier's fellows with me one time, and he actually only uses one size stent. No matter how tall or small, he has seven by 28 is the only stent they set on the shelf. Interesting.
4: Just, with like just extra in the you, bladder I mean, it, or not. It, it tells you it's, it's not size. It's not configuration. You know, it, it may just be material. Maybe that's it.
1: And a very aggressive marketing or purchasing department over there that they only allow you one stent of one
4: size. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I guess we should be grateful that we have different sizes.
0: Well, I'm going to turn things over to Dr. Ghani now as we're coming to a close uh, uh, to provide us kind of a final send-off and thank you as the Director of Music. So, Kershid, why don't you close us out?
5: Thank you. Thanks, Casey. I, I think there was a fantastic discussion on stents. In fact, I think to the members of music who are all tuned in, we have a real opportunity in music to to look at this, you know, in a prospective manner, and maybe try to determine some of these aspects around stent emission and even the use of novel stents. So, uh, so first of all, I, you know, I'm going to wrap up here, and I actually have to say the most important thank you is to Dr. Casey Dow. Uh, and so, you know, I, I know that uh, I'm going to shake do this because in person, you everyone would clap and there would be applause. And I know there's 180 people or so on the webinar. It was probably all. Uh, mentally clapping. I want to thank you, Casey, for leading this webinar. Uh, phenomenal work and getting everyone together. Hard work, and also for leading the the rocks program and, and really seeing it hum and fly. So, really, I'm, I'm grateful to you, and we all are in the state of Michigan. So, thank you. Uh, so then, so let's just cap up on recap on what we learned today. So, we learned from Dr. Borowski. Thank you, Mike, uh, and he spoke to us about access sheath use around safety, uh, technical aspects. And then I want to thank Mo Jaffrey, who gave us a, a fantastic talk on the music data around access sheet use. And the reality is the use is very is variable. Uh, and, and that's amazing. I mean, <laughs> so I think there's a lot there that we have yet to learn around uh, appropriate use of access sheets. Uh, and then we heard from Dr. Pearl, and many of you know is probably the, the world expert on urethroscopy. And so, Uh, And and to me, it's a huge honor to be able to share this stage with her. Yeah, I was one of the residents who read your randomized control trial with decompression, and it inspired me. So thank you to to be on the stage with you here. And from you, we had a fantastic state-of-the-art lecture on dusting and fragmentation techniques, the data around it. And actually, Peggy, I think the thing I got the most from your talk today was your comment about the personal experience of having a stent. I thought that was what was really insightful around the stent on string. So thank you. Uh, then Dr. Dave Levitt, he uh, gave us some fascinating data on music on the lower pole data. Uh, and what Dave showed us is that in m- music, most lower pole stones are treated actually with shockwave with the trypsy, not urethroscopy. And the stone free rates with urethroscopy, while much better, overall stone free rates for both modalities were quite substandard. And I think we have more to do to improve outcomes. And let's just remember out there to the wider community, if you've got big lower pole stones, I think the treatment the standard treatment should be a PCNL. And then Dr. DiBianco gave us um, uh, uh, his insights on the music data around stent emission and the new guidance that music are developing around that. So watch the space and thank you, John, for doing that. Um, my good friend, Ojas, uh, Dr. Shah, has led a fantastic discussion around novel stents, uh, h- how to use them, some technical tips, and just general guidance on AUA guidelines and stenting. And I think this is a, an area that, while old, is getting a, 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 emergent, a new uh, um, uh, emergent because of the novel stents that are in the market. Um, so. And finally, uh, I, I, my, my biggest thanks goes to the unsung heroes in our music collaborative. And, and they are not the urologists, they are the members of the coordinating center. And they are all indicated here in the, in the red boxes. And I'm going to take a moment just to thank everybody. Uh, and they are Susan Lincel, uh, Rod Dunn, uh, Anna Johnson, uh, G and Stephanie, uh, uh, Rabia Martin, uh, Stephanie Ferrante, Mahin Mirza, Corinne Labardi. And then the final note of thanks is to Bronson uh, uh, Conrado, who's the manager of the ROCS program and has been the brains around this whole webinar as well, along with Casey. So uh, on that note, I wanna thank everyone for taking part. Uh, let us know any more comments and thoughts on the, on the contact details there. Uh, thank you uh, to our invited speakers for spending their evening with us. Thank you, Dr. Pearl. Thank you, Dr. Borowski and thank you, Dr. Shah so thanks everyone have have a good night thank you for taking part and look forward to seeing you all at some point in the future bye-bye